talking today about the need to be proactive in your practice. <clears throat> Immediately the mind will say, well, what about those teachings on having to let go of everything? Everything is inconstant, stressful, not self. Let's just let it go and be done with it. So before we get into the need for proactive practice, we have to explain a little bit about right view, because that right view gives some guidance in how to use those perceptions. Um, these three perceptions are usually described as three characteristics, um, particularly when you get in the commentaries. In the canon, they're never described that way at all. The three perceptions that you apply to your experience with the purpose of learning to let go. And the question is, what do you let go at what stage of the practice? How do you apply those perceptions properly to what you're doing? And so it's important to understand that when the Buddha teaches about right view, he's actually talking about three different levels of right view. And the duties with regard to the, the different um, levels of right view will differ to, depending on what level of the practice you're on. And it doesn't mean you go from one level of right view and then you just drop that entirely when you go to the next one. There are times we'll be going back and forth depending on the issue that you're dealing with at any one particular time. So before we look at the readings, I'd like to give a kind of a general discussion first. Um, the afternoon will divide itself into two halves. Um, the first half will be about right view, and then the second half will be more about specifically gaining proactive insight in the processes of fabrication. So the three levels of right view, the first level, mundane right view, is right view about karma. You know, there are actions, you, actions do have results. You are actually responsible for your actions. And the results are going to be determined by the quality of the intention that goes into the action. Um, most of us, when we first learn about karma, there's some kind of an oh shit moment. When, <laughs> when you think about all the things that you did in the past that you thought you got away with. Um, and it's interesting to note when the Buddha teaches karma, he doesn't emphasize that side of the teaching. He emphasizes more the positive side. He actually starts his discussion of mundane right view with a very simple statement. There is what is given, there is what is sacrificed. Which, on the surface, would sound very strange. Of course, there are things that are given one from one person to another. What he's talking about here is that giving actually has value. Um, you, know, this, you have to look at this in the context of the culture of the time. You know, for millennia, the Brahmins have been teaching that giving isn't very important, especially when you give to Brahmins. Um, they actually have um, services for the dead, in which at one point where the Brahmins are doing the service, and then they will say, now we are taking on the voice of your dead ancestor. Give to the Brahmins. <laughs> and then after you give to the Brahmins, then the voice of your dead ancestor is supposed to say, give more. <laughs> now you can imagine after a couple of millennia of this, people got tired. And so there were two reactions to this, both of which said, you know, giving in any case has no meaning. Um, one explanation was that everything you experience is determined by the past, either by some creator God or simply by the workings of the universe. Um, and so that you don't really have any choice. When you give something, it's not because you have any particular virtue, you, have, you give because circumstances force it. And so therefore there is no virtue in giving. And the other explanation is that um, there's really nothing more to beings than just their bodies. And so when somebody dies, that's it. So why bother giving to some, anything to somebody who's gonna, just going to disappear anyhow? It um, doesn't really accomplish anything. 
And so when the Buddha was saying that there is what is given, he was basically saying two things. One is, you do have the choice, which is why it's a virtuous choice. I mean, there's, you have something that you have, that you have total right over. You could choose to give it or not give it. Um, and you choose to give it out of generosity, out of a sense of wanting to help. Um, and there's virtue in that. And secondly, he's saying that you know, people don't end with their death, that there is something that goes on, that continues a connection from one life to, to the next. And so helping one another is a, a really worthwhile thing because it's, it, does, it doesn't just disappear into nothingness. It actually goes to somebody that has continuing value. Um, further on, and then the Buddha talks about in mundane right view that there are good and bad actions, which have good and bad results. Then he also says there are spontaneously reborn beings. There is this world and the next. That's his way of saying that there is rebirth. There is something that happens, that you, that you go, another world that you go to after you die. When he's talking about spontaneously reborn beings, it's not that they come out of nothing. It's just that in certain levels of being, you don't have to go through a normal birth or a you know, childhood up to adult period. When you get to heaven, bang, you're, you're a deva already. Uh, you go to hell, you're a hell being immediately. You don't have to have hell parents. Um, <laughs> that's, for the, that's for the human realm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But in the, in, the, in, in the heavens, you don't have you know, divine parents, which can also be for the human realm, if you're lucky. Um, then he goes on to say, there is mother and father, which again, it sounds pretty obvious. Of course we have mothers, and of course we have fathers. But here again, he's saying that you have a special debt of gratitude to your parents, because they did have the choice. You know, the, the, your mother could have aborted you, or when you were born. There's actually a story in the canon where this one woman gives birth to a child and puts it out in a trash heap. That could have happened to you if your parents decided not to do that. Um, with all the kicking and screaming and crying and everything you did, they put up with it. And so you have to honor that. They, t they, held, they stuck with you when things were bad. And even if your physical parents did not stick with you, the fact that they gave you a body and your mother had to go through all of that um, pain of pregnancy, you owe her a debt of gratitude. In fact, in Thailand, when they have an ordination for young men, um, more traditionally now than, than they do now, they would have this long chant. It's actually longer than the ordination ceremony, where someone comes and chants about the difficulties that your parents had in raising you, because you're supposed to be dedicating the merit of your ordination to the parents. And nine-tenths of the chant is about those nine months that you were in your mother's womb. And it gets pretty graphic about your, your mother's morning sickness and all the times you started kicking her from inside, that kind of thing. So that you're feeling really grateful by the time that the, the chant is over. So, so when the Buddha talks about karma, he's, talking, he's emphasizing your freedom of choice. That you, your actions really do make a difference, and you have the choice to act skillfully or not skillfully. And there is a genuine virtue in acting skillfully. He does, however, say that karma is complex. You have to remember the the basic causal principle that the Buddha was working on is something called this-that conditionality. And it comes down to two causal principles working in conjunction. One is that some things arise together and pass away together, some causes and effects. In other words, that's instantaneous. Then there are other causes that will have an effect over time. An example, the first one is you put your finger into the fire, you don't have to wait until the next lifetime for it to hurt. You know. 
hurts right away. Um, an example of the second kind is that you plant a seed and you're not going to get to eat the rice right away or get to eat the fruit right away. It's going to take time for that seed to mature. And so karma is of both kinds, which means that at any one time you've got causes in the present moment affecting what you're experiencing and also causes coming in from the past. And as I explained last time, what you've got is potentials coming in from the past that your present fabrication, your present choices, will shape either skillfully or unskillfully into the experience you have. And this works out on the cosmic level in the sense that, say you do something bad in this lifetime, it doesn't mean that you will automatically have to go to a bad place next time. Sometimes you get a kind of a free pass for a lifetime or two. Although the Buddha said, as long as the, the seed is there, it will come, it will sprout. But then again, it's sprouting. Um, how it, you experience it will depend on your state of mind at the moment that it finally bears fruit. There's a sutta where he compares this process to um, taking a big lump of salt, and if you put it in a small cup of water, you cannot drink the water because it's just too salty. He says that's like a mind that is very narrow and confined, that hasn't been trained, and the results of past karma come in, and it, it can be, if it's bad karma, they can be very strongly experienced. However, you took that same lump of salt and you put it into a large, clean river of water, you could still drink the r water in the river because simply because there's so much water in the salt. The large river there stands from the mind that has been trained, and he basically describes the training in four terms. One is that your mind is practicing the unlimited, i.e., is practicing the unlimited goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. Um, secondly, it's able to be withstand being overcome by pain and able to be overcome overcome by pleasure. Thirdly, you're trained in virtue, and then fourthly, you're trained in discernment. So these trainings will actually mitigate the effects of past karma. So it's not like you once you've done something, you will, i.e., deserve to get 100% payback. How you actually experience it will depend on your training of your mind. It's interesting, when the Buddha is talking about karma, he never talks about people deserving to suffer. You'll notice when he talks about it, here he is teaching a path to the end of suffering, there's never the point he said, I will teach people not to suffer only if they don't deserve to suffer. It's for everybody, whether you quote-unquote deserve to suffer or not. That whole question of people deserving to suffer gets thrown out. Um, this is one of the aspects of karma that most people don't like. They think of somebody suffering that someplace back in there where they, ha they had some bad karma that means that they have to suffer or they deserve to suffer. The Buddha never put it in those terms. You know, they have an action from the past, but whether they will suffer from it or not in the present depends on their state of mind, which means you can help other people, one, train their minds so they don't suffer. And secondly, you have to realize it's not the case that, you may, as you may have heard, if you there's a statement that says, if you want to see someone's past actions, you look at their present condition. If you want to see their future condition, you look at their present actions. That's way too simplistic. It's assuming that you have one karma account and what you see in the present moment is the running balance. Actually, the Buddha's image is as a field of seeds. With every intentional action, you're planting a seed, planting a seed, planting a seed. So you can imagine how many seeds you have in your field. And some of them will ripen quickly, some of them will ripen slowly. So there are lots of different potentials in your field. Which means you look at somebody, you cannot see what their past karma potentials are. You see a few that are ripening right now, but maybe there are others that are ready to ripen. And with your help, maybe they can water the seeds that were good for good karma. 
So it doesn't mean that somebody is suffering, they're stuck in the suffering and that you can't help them or you shouldn't try to help them. You actually should, to whatever extent you can. So that's basically mundane right view. Are there any questions on that before we go on? Yes. Okay, that's, your finger is much slower than your mind. Your finger is much slower than your mind. I mean, the thing, it's a, okay, I could say spitting in the wind. You say, yeah, it takes a few seconds for it to, you know, the spit to come back, but it's pretty quick. Um, <laughs> I wonder if there truly are things that arise out of that. They come together. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the, he's specifically here talking about things happening in the mind. Yes. You have a particular emotion or a particular thought, and there will be a particular response. And if you learn, learn to drop that thought, it goes away. In fact, the process of fabrication we're talking about, you know, directed thought, evaluation, perceptions, feelings, these things arise and pass away pretty quickly, and so they will have an immediate effect. Yes? Mm-hmm. Virtue and discernment? Okay, the first one was developing unlimited states of mind, you know, Brahma Viharas. The second one is learning to keep train the mind not to be overcome by pain or overcome by pleasure. That's probably the important one out of the bunch. Um, and you do that, concentration practice actually is very important for that. You know, you're sitting down and there are going to be pains in your body, you say, I do not let myself get overcome by the pain. I will not be dissuaded and not moved away by the pain. Um, but it also helps you to withstand pleasure in the sense that you don't just, you know, when the mind finally does settle down, it feels really good, you don't just go wallowing in the pleasure. You realize, okay, there's pleasure here. It will do its work on the body. It will do its work on my mind. I don't have to go and gobble it down right away. So the pleasure can be there, but you don't lose your focus, you don't lose your mindfulness, you don't lose your alertness. So it comes down to you know, virtue, concentration, discernment are the things you need to train yourself in. As far as the discernment, uh, well, first with the Brahma Viharas, there's a passage where the Buddha was wounded by a stone sliver. You know, Devadatta threw the rock down the mountain to kill the Buddha, and it, the rock was shattered, and one of the slivers of the shattered rock got into the Buddha's foot, pierced the foot, and he had to take it out. And he was lying down, recovering. And Mara comes along and says, You poor thing. Here you are moping about your pain. And the Buddha says, I'm not moping at all. I'm spreading goodwill to everybody. And that's why he's using that unlimited state of mind so that his mind is not overcome by the pain. Anything else? Yes. Well, that's part of it. And also, even if you don't die, you're sitting there, oh, poor me, poor me, why is this? You know, that, that, you're identifying with it and you're feeling victimized by you know, the world. Why is it I'm injured and nobody else is injured? Uh, 
And you have to remember, you're not the only person who's being injured. Yes. It's a mental quality, and pain is a more physical. And I, I started to wonder about um, how we can really be sure that we're not going to be Okay, the insight there is you see that something is wrong. And the first thing you've got to question is, okay, is it really wrong? Are things really not the way they should be? And the next question is, is there anything I can do to change? Now, those are the rational questions you would ask during, you know, when you see something is wrong. And I think it's what he's talking there about is realizing that, that the ability to see that something is wrong can be very heightened. A lot of the Ajans in Thailand were very quick on seeing when something was wrong, but they didn't allow that to get turned into anger. You know, the, the angry response, you know, the kind of the emotional response. You'd see, they'd tell another story about a John Cha. Was someone went to see him, and he got there as a John Cha was chewing out one of the monks who'd done something really bad. And so he would chew out the monk for a bit, and then he'd say very, very nice things, friendly things to the other person, then come back, chew out the monk again, and kind of back and forth, back and forth, just to show, okay, he wasn't carrying it around. You know, he knew how to be forceful with that person. You know, it's like when you're a parent. Sometimes even you're not really angry at your child, but you realize the child has done something really stupid, and if they repeat it again, they're going to get themselves in danger. So you've got to make it really, sh you know, you've got to show that you're worked up, even though you may not be worked up about the issue. So it's the ability to recognize when something is wrong. That, that's what I think what he's talking about, because the word tosa in Thailand means, tosa doesn't mean only anger, but also means the ability to see faults. So actually, what you want out of a teacher, if you're serious, you want a teacher who can actually point out to you how you're doing something wrong, and I want to stop, you know, just stop it now. So that's that's how I would understand that answer. Okay, with mundane right view. One other point I wanted to make is that when the Buddha is talking about the various truths that he teaches. Um, Truths don't just sit there. He's not just giving you useful or interesting information about the world out there. He's pointing out certain qualities that you have to look for in your mind and in the world. And then there's a duty that goes with that. The truths are there to serve a purpose. Um, it's interesting that the word for meaning in Pali, atta, A-T-T-H-A, now we're not talking A-T-T-A, which is self, this is A-T-T-H-A, atta. It means the meaning of a word, but it also means the purpose, and it also means the benefit, and also means the goal. All four things are working together there. So when we're taught a truth, we're at the question is, okay, what's the purpose of this truth? Not only do the, what do the mean, what words mean, what is the purpose of taking this on? What's the benefit of it? And what's the duty that's implied? 
in order to get the full benefit out of it. Now, in terms of the duties or the various levels of right view, there's one pass. There, you go through the canon, you look for the teachings that the Buddha said were categorically true across the board. There are only two teachings, and interestingly, the three characteristics of the three perceptions are not one of them. The those that are true across the board are one. Unskillful actions should be abandoned, and unskillful actions should be developed. And then when you get to the Four Noble Truths, under, under no, first level of Noble Right View, okay, suffering should be comprehended, its cause should be abandoned, its cessation should be realized, and the path should be developed. So for the Buddha, the truth is not something that just kind of sits there on the page or sits there in the words. It ha it, these categories carry duties. And we'll see why this, why this is particularly important as we go on. Um, as I said, the, the second level of right view is the Four Noble Truths. And it's interesting to see how the Buddha gets from the first to the second. There is a talk that he gave, and it's reported several times in the canon. The interesting thing is it's never depicted. In other words, we don't get to know what the words are. We just get to know the list of topics. And the Buddha starts out the list of topics with generosity with giving, how good it is to give. Um, when he talks about, you know, that there, there's a kind of a Buddhist culture that's developed around that. Notice that both, everything begins with giving, both his description of mundane right view and then as you're moving from mundane right view to noble right view. And because he wants to emphasize the fact that there is freedom of choice, monks have to be very particular about how they discuss generosity, because here we are on the receiving end of everybody else's generosity. We have to learn how not to abuse it. Number one thing is we don't give dana talks. You know, they say dana is a 2,500-year-old tradition. The dana talk is a 30-year-old tradition. <laughs> when the Buddha talked about generosity, he would talk about it after someone had given, to basically make them feel good about the fact that they'd given. But he wouldn't say, you know, talk to so as to make them want to reach into their wallet and give out a little extra money. Aside from the fact they didn't have wallets then. Um, um, secondly, um, when monks are asked, or people come to monks and ask them, where should I give this gift? The monks are supposed to say, where you feel inspired, where you feel it be well used, where it be well taken care of. That's it. No fundraising. And the whole purpose of this is to preserve that sense of freedom around the act of giving. As you look back on times when you gave a gift because you had to, and other times when you gave a gift because you wanted to, the feeling is very different. You might try that as an exercise to think about when was the first time that you actually gave something, not because your mom and dad said you had to give it because it was Christmas or somebody's birthday or whatever, but you just saw something you wanted to give it. In my own case, the, the one thing that sticks up in my mind was when I was 10, we moved to Kansas. And prior to that, we lived on a farm. And we got to Kansas, and we lived in a town. And I could get on my bike, and I could ride my bike down to a store. Now, I'd never been able to do that before. And so you can imagine what I did. I would go down to the store. And one day, I was in the store, and I saw an egg separator. You know, the little plastic thing where they, you can put the egg in, and it captures the yolk, and the whites go through. And I'd seen my mother baking. You know, separating the whites from the yolks, I don't know how many times. I thought, she'd probably like this. And it wasn't too expensive, so I bought it and gave it to her. 
And then years later, after she died, we were going through her things, and guess what we found? The leg separator. Um, even though she had made the mistake one time of putting it in the dishwasher and it was kind of melted. <laughs> but she kept it. So, so you might want to, as an exercise, think about that. The, the, the gifts you give freely are the ones that mean the most to both sides. And so this is what the Buddha is trying to encourage that attitude, which is why we have this etiquette around, around giving. So when the Buddha starts out the graduated discourse, he's talking about you know, feeling good about giving. Realizing the implications of that, that you had the freedom of choice to give, or freedom of choice not to give, but you decided to give. Same, the second quality is virtue. What he's doing here is talking, getting you ready to get into the Four Noble Truths by talking about karma. Virtue, and the, what a good thing it is to be virtuous. The third thing you're talking about would be heaven. You know, when you're, you're virtuous and you're generous in this lifetime, you die, you will tend to go to a good rebirth. And again, it's interesting. There are not that many detailed descriptions of, of heaven in the canon law. In fact, there are almost none. Hell? Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> but there's not much about heaven. Then the third thing is, though, is okay, even heaven has its drawbacks. For one more thing, it's not eternal. And when you fall, you fall, tend to fall hard. As the Buddha said, the, you know, the, the number of beings so after they leave heaven are reborn again as devas and are reborn again as human beings is extremely, extremely small. Most devas go down to the lower realms. So there's danger. And so then what is talking about the drawbacks of looking just for the rewards of heaven. He talks about them the degradation and the defilement of sensuality. In other words, our desire simply for sensual rewards is defiling to the mind and it pulls us down. And then finally, after he's made that point, he talks an awful lot about the, the drawbacks of sensuality. Then he goes into the rewards of renunciation. In other words, that the happiness that could come from renunciation, you finally get the mind inclined to think, that would be a good thing if I could find some well-being that is not pulled down by sensuality. And then you'd be ready for the Four Noble Truths. Now notice that he's taking the teaching of karma and using the teaching of karma to get the mind prepared for the Four Noble Truths. Because again, the Four Noble Truths is an extension of that. You've got the cause of suffering, which is a kind of action, unskillful, and the suffering is the result. And then you've got the path, which is skillful action, and then the result of that would be the cessation of suffering. So it, it's an application of the teaching on karma, but you're bringing it inside. This is very different from the way most of us were introduced to Four Noble Truths. If you take a college course on Buddhism, it's one of the first things they talk about, Four Noble Truths. And there are a few cases where the Buddhists would launch into the Four Noble Truths talking to some of his students, but often not. He'd start you off with generosity and virtue first and work your way up to the Four Noble Truths. So, the Four Noble Truths. This is the first level of transcendent right view takes all that issue of your actions and their importance and it focuses on the problem of suffering. Why is it that the mind suffers? And when he's talking in terms of suffering here, you have to realize there are basically two categories of suffering. There's the suffering that comes simply because things arise and pass away. There's a stress involved in the process of their arising and passing away, which is natural to things, natural to experiences all over. 
And then there, there, there's the, the suffering that comes from craving and clinging, and that doesn't have to be there. And that's what he's focusing on. It's the, it's the suffering that we cause ourselves, that's what he's focusing on, in the Four Noble Truths, and that's something to be abandoned. And you discover that once you take care of that suffering, then the stress of experience arising and passing away does not impinge on the mind. So you solve this problem. Some people say, well, the Buddha came to wipe out all forms of suffering. He said, no, he's focusing specifically on this one, the suffering that you cause yourself. Which is why the path is something that, you know, if the Buddha couldn't come and save us, he didn't go out trying to change the world, he said, except by getting everybody to change the world from within. Um, this is what the Four Noble Truths are about. Um, now the Four Noble Truths, as I said, are not just four interesting facts about suffering. There's a question of priorities. He's saying, this is the, this is the big issue in life, is the suffering that we cause ourselves. And they are categories for dividing your experience. Learn how to look at your experience, not in the sense of me or mine or what other, outside of me and mine, but simply, where is our stress? What's causing it? What can I do to put it to an end? So in terms of the First Noble Truth, he, he gives examples of stress and suffering. He doesn't provide a, a definition. Um, I've been, you may have seen people say, well, the word dukkha comes from whatever, um, something that's poorly, uh, like a wheel that's poorly put on or something like that. That's not the canon. The Buddha's not trying to define things by defining the term. He gives you a list of the different causes of suffering from which you can probably relate to. There's the stress of aging, illness, death, the stress of birth, the stress of not getting what you want, the stress of being with what you don't like, the stress of being, being separated from what you do like, sorrow, lamentation, despair. And then he says, five clinging aggregates. That's the part that's difficult to, re to relate to, but the five clinging aggregates are actually what he says is the way you can get a handle on stress, because that's where you want to look. So you have to learn how to locate. You know, wh what are these five aggregates? We talked about them a little bit last night. They are activities of the mind, form, which is your sense of physical things, your experience of physical things, primarily your body, but also other physical things outside. Feeling, these are feeling tones of pleasure, pain, either pleasure nor pain. Perceptions are the labels that you put on things, either individual words or visual images. You identify things. Um, the fabrication is the activity of the mind in shaping its experience. And then finally there's consciousness, which is your awareness of these things. Clinging to any of these things is, is suffering. Now the clinging here, the word for clinging also means to feed. You're feeding off of your sense of the form. You're feeding off your feelings. You're feeding off the perceptions. Specifically what you're feeding off is the sense of pleasure that you can get from them. And the Buddha talks about how these things are not just kind of there in the world, but we actually are involved in the process of shaping them through our intentions. There's potentials coming in from the past, and this is where the teaching on karma comes in again. There are potentials coming in from the past that then you then shape into actual feelings and actual perceptions, fabrications, for the purpose of getting something out of them, trying to get pleasure from them. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the second half of the day, second half of the afternoon. Okay. The cause of stress or the origination of stress is one of three forms of clinging. There's either clinging for sensuality, clinging for becoming 
the clinging for non-becoming. Sensuality here is not sensual pleasure, it's your fascination with thinking about sensual pleasures. You can be sitting here thinking about, I want to have pizza tonight. You can think, spend the whole afternoon thinking about pizza. You've got Hawthorne Street just down here. You know? And you can decide which of the pizzerias you want to go to, what kind of pizza you'd like. and The mind can spend, you just fascinate itself with all this planning about the pleasures you're going to get out of the pizza. When you actually get the pizza, it doesn't take that long to eat it. And the actual experience of it may not be quite what you thought it was. But then you can sit about it and think about it for another couple of hours afterwards. Boy, wasn't that a great pizza? Really great pizza. I want to go back to that pizzeria again. <laughs> and so when the Buddha is talking about clinging for sensuality, or craving for sensuality, it's, it's, we're craving for that ability to, fasten, you know, to fantasize about sensual pleasures. That's what we're stuck on. That's what we go for. Imagine for a minute, okay, you, you go down to, you decide which pizza place you want to go to, and you go down there, the doors are closed. Say, so it doesn't matter, there are other pizza places. You, you, can, you, can, you can manage. But if someone were to tell you, you are forbidden for thinking about pizzas this afternoon, your mind would rebel. And you sit there, I'm going to show up, I'm going to think about pizza all afternoon. So it's, it's a sign that we really are attached to these things. Years ago, there was a book that was printed. It was called Open to Desire. It was supposed to be a Buddhist analysis of desire, in which the author was saying that the Buddha said, desire is okay as long as you're not attached to the object. It's got it totally backwards. I mean, that's a formula for serial sex offenders. You, know? you can desire, but you're not attached. <laughs> the Buddha said it's our fascination with that, those kinds of desires. That's what we're, we're stuck on. Craving for becoming. Becoming here is a world of experience, and you're taking on an identity within that world of experience. And both the world and the identity center on a desire, usually for sensuality, but it can be a desire for something else. What this is is basically you have a specific desire, and then the question is, how are you going to get it? And as soon as you ask that question, how are you going to get it, you've got two senses of self involved in there right there. One is the you that's going to be enjoying that pleasure, and the other is the you that's going to go out and get it. The self as the consumer and the self as the producer. We have both sides. And that's for each desire that we take on. For example, you're sitting here thinking about the pizza, the pizza place. The parts of the world that have to do with your desire for pizza are the parts of that particular world that's going to be in that particular becoming. And your own ability to get the pizza, you have the money in your pocket or you have the credit card in your, in your pocket. Speaking of which, yesterday I saw an interesting exchange. We got to the airport, we had to pay a baggage fee, and the Naga asked the guy behind the counter, can we use paper money? <laughs> can you actually use cash nowadays? <laughs> Okay, so your, your ability to pay for the pizza, your ability to get over to the pizza place, those are the relevant parts of you in that world. As far as the world is concerned, the parts that are either going to be conducive to get the pizza or the parts that are going to get in the way of getting the pizza, those are the relevant parts of the world. Other things don't matter at that point. And we have many of these worlds going through the mind in the course of the day. Now sometimes they work together and sometimes they work at cross purposes. I suppose there's the you who wants to be a fine, upstanding member of the community, 
but there was also the you who wants to have an affair with your neighbor. Two very conflicting worlds, two very conflicting identities. The Buddha says this kind of craving leads to suffering. Um, And in an interesting way, the the third kind of craving that leads to suffering is craving for non-becoming, which you try to obliterate that particular sense of self, or you try to obliterate that particular world that you don't like. Now the reason this this too is a form of suffering is that as the Buddha said, as soon as you start taking on that desire, you've created a new becoming, the new becoming of the destroyer. I want this to be destroyed. Now I am the destroyer. I have the particular powers to destroy this. And that's a different kind of becoming. So that too leads to suffering, which, as you can see, causes a problem. How are you going to get out of becoming without craving non-becoming? And the Buddha's answer is that you develop the path. You, you, take it on, you basically take on the issue of becoming kind of sideways. We'll talk about that in a minute. The cessation of suffering, the Buddha said, is learning how to develop dispassion for those kinds of craving. That doesn't mean that you obliterate them, you just kind of let them go. You see them arise and you see how, to, how they, you don't have to get involved in creating them any further, and then they just kind of end of their own. And the path is what's enable you, what enables you to do that. The path is, this, is the strategy for getting around these forms, the, the, the problem of becoming and non-becoming. You do that by developing the path factors from right view all the way through right concentration. Any questions on that? Yes. It's a process. Mm-hmm. And you notice what you said just now, you know, virtue, concentration, discernment. That's not the order of the path factors. The path factors start with right view, right resolve, which are the wisdom factors, the discernment factors, then go through virtue and then through concentration. And the question is, well, why does the Buddha teach both lists? And it's because the discernment is actually going to do the work. And the discernment has to give guidance to the rest of the factors. But it's not enough without having developed those other factors. The other factors actually teach lessons to right view. The right view needs to be in place. To some extent, at least. I mean, it's like, it's like when you're building a building, you, know, you, you put up a, a, a post, but you also have to brace it a little bit because the post is going to wobble a little bit. But then when you start building the rest of the whole building, find the whole thing gets solid because all the different parts are helping one another. Stay solid. So you've got right view, but it's still just kind of theoretical. It can still waver. But then when you start doing the other factors, because what it's, the other factors are going to teach you, but what is it like to develop a skillful quality? What is it like to abandon an unskillful quality? And you begin to realize, okay, I have to have desire. Now, when you first read the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha doesn't talk about it, just the basic list. Desire is not mentioned in any place except for craving and the cause of suffering. But then when you look into more detail in the path, you get into right effort. And part of right effort is generating the desire to abandon the unskillful and develop skillful qualities. 
So then there's a, here's a role for desire on the path, which you wouldn't have known until you actually had, had, put, the, had put the teachings into practice. With the bodily part, and also just as you get more hands-on experience, it's like you know, going to school and let's say going to a military academy and learning military strategy in the classroom, and then you get out there in the field and you say, "Oh, this is very different." You know, the enemy is not lined up on the board where I can see it clearly. You know, so you have to think in different ways, and you realize, okay, there's another, there are other skills involved aside from just the theoretical side. Well, simply the fact that things are put together by causes means that they're unstable and they're instability. As it, there's stress in the instability itself. And especially if you're going to try to place your, your happiness on those things, that's when you realize really how unstable these things are. Put it another way, arahants can still feel pain in their bodies, but they don't suffer from it in their minds. This is what allows for you know, people, you know, as a John Chai used to say, you know, when, when arahants eat something sour, they, you know, they squeeze up their eyes because it's sour. But the mind itself is not, is not stressed by it. Is there a question? Why do the Vedas offer? I think they've basically um, exhausted their account. Well, it depends on what kind of deva you are. I mean, if you're a wise deva, you, you could try to continue doing good things if you can. But there are a lot of them, um, as they used to say, like Californians. <laughs> 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 They're just there on the beach, and it's just really nice on the beach. And who cares about what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm just going to join myself on the beach. There's a lot of devas who think that way. And it happens in a lot of ways. I mean, you see some people, you know, who've worked really hard all their lives, and they finally cash in, and then they forget all the virtues that got them there. They think, well, now that I'm wealthy, I can afford to, you know, forget about, forget about all that. There's a story in the canon about this one woman who was very diligent in providing food for two monks, all during their lifetimes. Then they all die, and she goes up to the Dusita heaven, which is one of the higher heavens. And it's where the more mature devas tend to go. And she said, well, gee, what about those monks that I was feeding all this time? Where are they? And she looks around and she finds them with the Gandharvas. Now, the Gandharvas are the teenagers of the deva world. They're into fast vehicles. They're into music. They're into sex. I mean, the whole, the whole schmear. Um, in fact, I have a personal theory that most UFO sightings are Gandharvas, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save that for another day. <laughs> And so she goes down and she gives them a piece of her mind. She says, I did not feed you so you could become Gandharvas. <laughs> and one of the Gandharvas gets very embarrassed. And so he goes off and he practices and he goes to a higher level. But the other Gandharva just couldn't care less and he just spends all of his time in Gandharva pleasures. So that's why the day was fall. 
And even if they're relatively lucky devas who come back to the human world, um, it's kind of a hard fall. Can you imagine having all your pleasures, all your desires immediately satisfied, and then you get to a world where they're not immediately satisfied? My, my teacher had a couple of students who were very difficult people, and one time he said, you know, they were devas in their last lifetime. <laughs> So it's not always a good thing. Yes? Um, it is. And the way you explained it is the same way it was explained to the. Uh, it's the, the, it applies the same way. You can look at a book, this, a book called The Paradox of Becoming, that explains that the whole relationship there. Because it is both a macro process and a micro process. I mean, the fact that you are who you are as a human being in this world, that's a macro-becoming. And it comes from, however, your micro-becomings, these, these little identities that you take on in your mind as you're trying to pursue hap- uh, your desires as you go through the world. Another question? Yes? I'm a little confused on, um, like, when you go to different realms because of merit, mm-hmm. can, can you, like, achieve awakening in a new realm instead of, like, having to fall back? They talk about devas who did do, do gain awakening here. There's sutras where the Buddha gives a Dharma talk and all these devas become stream, retur- stream enterers. Um, if you become a non-returner in the human realm, you actually achieve full awakening in one of the Brahma worlds. But again, it has to be you know, some of the more serious devas. Below the human world, I've never heard of anybody gaining awakening. I'm not an arahant, I can't tell you. <laughs> but that, the number one thing is that there, there's no attraction to those things for them at all. And it's not like they cannot think of certain things. They could think about anything they wanted to think about, but certainly just, just hold no appeal. Well, there's one where they talk about an arahant's reaction to lust. And he says the thought of the sexual act, either they, they view either with total indifference or disgust. So it means you know, the thought could come, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that based on the 
but then later on when it's still fog and you can remember it like then maybe but still not clear for me. Yeah. Well uh, take sex for for example. It's pretty disgusting. And yet people go for it, you know. And then the part of you thinks, well, how about if I had an, a life where I could just have sex with anybody I wanted to, you know? And that's what an animal life is like. But you forget about, okay, if you had sex with anybody you wanted to, everybody else in that world would be having sex with anybody they wanted to, and you start fighting over what you could get. And when the mind gets weakened toward the end of life, it, some of the defenses that you build up start going away. And things that you would normally be ashamed to think about, suddenly they come back to the mind. And that's how the mind falls. The problem with sensuality is you get bored with the same things all over again. I mean, think about food, you know, the, the, the weird things, you know, those foams they make in Europe where you, if you're going to a Michelin five-star restaurant and they have these all the bizarre ingredients. Some of them are pretty disgusting when you think about them. But they say, hey, let's have a new flavor sensation. And so, you, you know, you've, you've gotten all the, the normal flavor sensations and you say, well, something else, where, where else? And you start going off in weird directions. Because sensuality is never satisfying. Well, they're, they're in a, if they have a noble attainment, they're really in a different place from most people. With jhanas, I mean, an ordinary, you know, run-of-the-mill, unenlightened person can get into jhana, but the jhana can fail, can fall. This may take a little time, but there's a great story in Thailand. Two great stories. They're relevant here. One is there was this, these two friends who die, and one of them becomes a deva, and the other becomes a dog. And the friend who's a deva starts looking for the old friend. Where is my old friend? Where did that happen? Says, my gosh, my friend has been reborn as a dog. Now this deva has a few powers, and so he turns the dog into a prince. So here's this prince kind of wandering around without a kingdom, but he's, he's a prince, you know. And he meets up with this princess, and the princess falls in love with him. And she takes him home. And the parents say, well, you know, where did you get this person? She said, I don't know, but I love him. I want to marry him. Said, we don't even know where he's coming from. What kind of prince is this? Well, he's, he's, he's obviously a prince, and I want him. And so she pr prevails over her parents, and they get married. And he, you know, the, the, the dog, quote, prince, the dog slash prince is living there in the family. But then one day she comes into their, their apartment and finds him in the bathroom eating shit out of the toilet. And she realizes, okay, this is not a real prince, you know. <laughs> So it gets expelled. <laughs> so it can happen. <laughs> the second story, this is a little bit more complicated, um, but it gives you an idea of the perspective of, of, of rebirth. There's this deva who's got a deva wife, and she's really, really good looking. And he's constantly bragging about, I've got the prettiest deva wife in, in the heavens. And his friends, the other devas, get sick and tired of hearing him brag. 
And so they say, if she's, okay, they say, if she's really that beautiful, you see that hermit down there on earth who's sitting there meditating, and they look down at this guy, and he's, he's been out in the sun for how many years, so he's, he's tanned, so his skin is like leather, and termites have built a nest up over part of his body, and the, the lizards are running all over, and he's just sitting there totally in jhana. Um, and they say, if you can make him break, if your wife can make him break jhana, then we'll believe that she's really cool, you know. So he gets his wife all dressed up in all of her Deva finery, and she's feeling embarrassed about the whole thing. And so he gets her to stand in front of this, this hermit while he's meditating there, and then the Deva is hiding in the trees behind to see watch what's going to happen. And the hermit begins to realize there's somebody there. He opens his eyes, he sees the woman, he also sees the, the husband in the trees. And he immediately realizes what's going on. He said, you are tempting me. I'm going to put a curse on you. You're going to be, die and be born as human beings. You're going to be separated for three times in spite of the fact that you really love each other. And only after the third time will the curse be done. And that's the beginning of a very long story, a very long poem about the, the male David gets reborn as a poor merchant and the female David gets reborn as the daughter of a really rich merchant. And it talks about how you know, he's walking down the street one day and she's up in the balcony and she looks down at him, he looks up at her and you know, bang, instant, falling for each other. And so they have to elope. And he takes her on the sea and they get shipwrecked. And he searches and searches and searches for her and he, and he comes to this, this island where this big empty palace and there inside the palace is her body under a glass coffin. Of course, he loses it. Only then does he realize that this body that he's seeing is Deva, you know, Deva Figment. So he actually finds her eventually. And then they get separated a second time. And then the final time is they're in the woods and she's lost and so he's trying to find her and he sees her being devoured by a tiger. And so he just loses it and so he commits suicide and she comes across, and it turns out again this is another Deva Figment and she comes across him, sees him dead, so she commits suicide. The next thing you know they're back up in heaven laughing about the whole thing. <laughs> Tragedy just doesn't work you know, in a multi-lifetime universe. <laughs> so, okay, we're getting off topic. Um, <laughs> so, any other questions about the Four Noble Truths? <laughs> okay. So again, these are four categories for defining your experience and each of them carries a duty. And the whole purpose of this is to let go of the things that you've been fabricating that have been causing stress. And what happens is you, you've got the problem here that you're actually trying to get to something unfabricated, but the path itself is something fabricated. Which means that there comes a point where after the path has done its work, you have to let it go. And to do that requires a third level of right view, the one that gets you inclined to let go of everything. Um, John Munn talks about this process. He says, there comes a point in the practice where four noble truths all become one. In other words, you no longer have four duties, you just have one duty, which is to let go, let go, let go. And this is when they're talking about you know, applying the perceptions of inconstantly stress and not-self to everything. This is the area when this happens. What happens is you learn to look at views as actions, and first, of course, you apply that to all unskillful views. You say, what, what, instead of getting an argument as to whether those views are true or false, you ask, well, what is it to hold on to that view? 
You know, these views are stressful, they're fabricated, and you want to learn how to let go of them because they're unskillful. And then finally you turn around and apply the same process to right view itself. You say, well, this too is fabricated. If I were to hold on to this, it would be stressful. So I have to learn how to develop dispassion for this as well. Okay. So at this point, everything that you arise, you regard this as just stress, and so there's only one duty, which is dispassion. So as you see, there are three levels of right view, depending on where you are in the practice. And so the question is, as I said from earlier, when you're talking about the three characteristics, or what are actually three perceptions, how do they relate to right view? And they're going to play a different role on each level. When you're talking about the mundane level of right view, where simply the duty is to abandon unskillful things and to develop skillful things, what you're trying to do is develop dispassion for whatever is unskillful. An unskillful thought comes up in the mind, you have to say, this is not really me, this is not really mine, I don't want to identify with this thought as me or mine. So you learn to see how it's inconstant, you learn to see how it's stressful. Like that you know, desire for the, for the pizza. You say, I could sit here and just you know get myself all worked up about how much I want that pizza. But then it's wasted time. I could just as easily just go at the end of the day and get the pizza without all this fantasizing beforehand. And in the meantime, my mind would be more free to <laughs> devote to other more useful things. So you learn to see that this, this particular desire is nothing I want to get involved in right now. So you see that it is, it's, it's stressful in order to maintain it, and it's not going to give you that much satisfaction anyhow. So you say, do I want to identify with this? Notice when you're talking about the three characteristics, the Buddha never says, if something, what he does say is this, if something is stressful, excuse me, if something isn't constant, is it easeful? No, it's stressful. If it's stressful, is it worth identifying as what you are or what yourself is? He's not coming to the conclusion that there is no self. He's just saying, is this thing worth identifying with? And you're saying, no, so you can drop it. So whatever unskillful thoughts come up, whatever unskillful motivations you might have, you learn how to analyze them in terms of these three characteristics. See that you can let them go. So that's how those things function, those perceptions function on the level of mundane right view. In terms of the Four Noble Truths, let's see, there's something more I wanted to say. Oh, and also, let's say in, in terms of your, your precepts, there's a passage where the Buddha says, you know, you could suffer loss in terms of wealth, you could suffer, suffer, suffer loss in terms of relatives, you could suffer loss even in terms of your health. He says, those kinds of loss are not serious. The really serious losses are loss in terms of your views and loss in terms of your virtues. And then this comes up with the issue, you know, where you're afraid to observe precepts for the fear that it might be, like you don't want to observe the eight precepts because you're afraid if I don't get to eat in the evening it's going to be bad for me physically. You have to say, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. But the eight precepts are not nearly as serious as the five precepts when you start thinking, well, maybe I have to steal or maybe I have to do some lying or something in order to gain the wealth that I need to feed my, my family. The Buddha says, that's a serious loss. So here we're dealing with not just you know, ordinary, unskillful, you know, easily recognized, unskillful habits. There are certain attachments we have to the, what we think is important that we have to say, I have to learn how to let go of that too. And this is where it begins to bite. It gets into our attachments to things.
that we feel are actually good. And the whole issue about, there was a discussion a while back about, you know, Buddhism, one of the things that Buddhism lacks is a theory of a just war. And I think it's very good that Buddhism lacks a theory of just war. But there's other people saying, well, you know, if you, if you, if you don't go to war, you, what could happen to your relatives? What could happen to your freedoms? And those kinds of things. And the Buddha would say, it'd be, it's better to be willing to sacrifice those things rather than to go out and kill. So here you have to learn how to apply the perception of not-self or not-owning things to a lot of things that you actually own on the conventional, self, on the conventional level. So that's how the three characteristics or three perceptions apply to mundane right view. In terms of the Four Noble Truths, the three perceptions apply and part of those, part of those duties. Sometimes you see the three perceptions as um, identical with the First Noble Truth. That's not the case. They are identical with, the, identical with the process of trying to comprehend suffering, of trying to abandon its cause and trying to develop the path. In trying to comprehend suffering, you learn to look at, well, what are the things that I tend to cling to that are causing su that are suffering? The five aggregates, how can I let go of that clinging? And this is where you start applying the perception of not-self or, or inconstancy to, say, things like pain, physical pain or mental pain. In terms of the cause, you have to learn how not to identify with the craving, so you can abandon it. In terms of the path, this is very similar to the process that you apply to the question of skillful and unskillful. While you are doing concentration, you do not sit there and say, my concentration is in constant stressful, not self. What you say is, everything that's going to pull me away from concentration is in constant stressful, but not self. But I'm going to take my, make my constant concentration as constant and pleasant and as under my control as I can. So the concentration itself actually fights the three, you know, three, three perceptions. I was just looking at a book right now saying that if you take a very effortful approach to concentration, you're defeating it, and sometimes yes, sometimes no. Your effort has to be finely gauged to how do you learn how to relax into the breath, but also how do you keep, you know, keep your mind from just kind of wandering off to something else. It's a combination of giving it pleasure, but also the carrot and the stick. You need both the carrot and the stick in order to get the mind into concentration. And one of the ways of getting or making sure that you stay in concentration is to learn how to see the possible distractions as in constant stressful, not self. In the forest tradition, when they teach concentration practice, they, they don't start so much with the technique. They start out with getting you to think about the things that would pull you out of concentration before they pull you out. In other words, prior to the experience of sitting down or prior to the practice of sitting down, you think a bit about the nature of the body, thinking about the nature of things, that, sensuality, why it would be a good thing to get beyond that. In other words, develop the right attitude to be willing to settle down. So here you are thinking about how these things really are not worth the effort that goes into them, so it'd be best to let them go. That's part of the technique of concentration. But for the concentration itself, as John Lee says, you're trying to create something that is going against the three characteristics. Just as I said just now, it's, you try to make it as constant as possible. You want your attention to just stick with the breath as constantly as you can. Make it as pleasant and easeful as possible and get it under your control. So those are the, the duties of the three, character, three perceptions in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And then finally, when you get to the ultimate level, the ultimate level of right view, then, okay, then you apply those perceptions to everything so that you can let go of everything. 
And that's, that's, it's at that point where, the, where they're applied everywhere. Any questions on that? Yes. Um, did I understand correctly last night when you were talking about letting go? I think what you said is it's so difficult to return to love through these various things that it would be just easier if we shift our tuning to do something that's more beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so do I take that to mean that's a method, not it's it's a strategy, yes. Like the, the the path itself is a strategy. When it's done its work, then you let it go. You know, the Buddha gives the image of the raft. Yeah. That you know, when you get to the other side of the river, you let the raft go. You don't put it up in your head and carry it as you go on. But the point that people tend to forget about that image is getting across the river. You've got to hold on to the raft. You don't make a show at everybody, hey, look at me, I'm you know, I'm not holding on to the raft. You fall off. <laughs> And particularly with the whole issue of feeding, because because the mind is feeding, you need to provide it with food on the path. And concentration is the element of the path that's most often identified as a kind of food. The pleasure that it gives, the sense of refreshment, the sense of strength that it gives, that nourishes you. And in John Fuang's image, he said it's like having your engine, having some lubricant. Without the lubricant, it seizes up. And the Buddhism image just says it's like you know the path is like having a fortress that you defend, and concentration is the food for the soldiers and the and the guardians. The soldiers are right effort, and the guardian is right mindfulness. And the concentration feeds those. Yes. goes back to the discernment, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they, the forest tradition likes to talk about this a lot. It's that the th all, all three of these aspects of the path have to help one another along. I mean, the more discernment and the more concentration you have, the easier it's going to, it will be to be virtuous. Um, the more discernment you have, the easier it is to get the mind in concentration. So the influences go back and forth. Okay, let's look at the readings for a bit. Okay, the first reading is basically the Buddhist definition of right view. Okay, there is what is on the mundane level. There is what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed. There are the fruits and results of good and bad actions. There is this world and the next world. There is mother and father. There are spontaneously reborn beings. There are contemplatives and Brahmins who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next, after having directly known and realized it for themselves. Okay, this is basically a statement of conviction. It's kind of a working hypothesis that you're going on. You, these things haven't been proven to you yet by your own experience, but you, ha you take them on as the assumptions that are going to inform your practice. Specifically, if you didn't believe in the power of action to make a difference, there would be no 
way that you can actually have a path of practice. So you have to have these assumptions in order to, in order to practice. As, if as we go through any of these passages you have any questions about them, just shoot up your hand. And then this is moving from mundane to transcendent right view. This is the graduated talk that, in this case, he gave it to Ubali, the householder. Talk on giving, talk on virtue, talk on heaven. He proclaimed the drawbacks, degradation, and defilement in sensuality, and the rewards of renunciation. Then when he knew that Ubali, the householder, was of ready mind, malleable mind, unhindered mind, exultant mind, confident mind, he proclaimed to him the distinctive teaching of the awakened ones, stress, origination, cessation, path. Just as a white cloth with stains removed would rightly take dye, in the same way there arose to Ubali, the householder, in that very seat, the dustless, stainless Dharma eye. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. Then having seen the Dharma, having reached the Dharma, known the Dharma, having gained a footing in the Dharma, having crossed over and beyond doubt, having no more questioning, Ubali, the householder, gained fearlessness and was independent of others with regard to the teacher's message. There's another passage where Sariputta has, has experienced the same thing. He goes back and he sees Moggallana, who is, at that point is just a friend of his, that neither of them have ordained yet. And Moggallana says, you look bright. Have you seen the deathless? And Sariputta says, yes. So this Dhamma eye not only sees the fact that everything that, pass, that has subject to origination is subject to passing away, it also sees the deathless. In fact, it's only when you've seen the deathless that that actual con that concept would, would occur to you. Whatever is subject to origination is subject to passing away, because you've seen something that is not subject to origination. It's only after that experience that that distinction would occur to you. It's like you know, until they had electric guitars, there was no such thing as an acoustic guitar. Right? They were just guitars. <laughs> but then once there are electric guitars, oh, there are now there are acoustic guitars. In the same way, it's when you've had that experience of what is not subject to origination, then the concept, what is, everything that is subject to origination occurs to you. He's crossed over doubt. He becomes independent of others with regard to the teacher's message. In other words, he understands what the Buddha had to say because he saw the atta, the goal to which it was aimed. Any questions on that? to remember one, the Buddha was picking all the ripe fruit. <laughs> and he passed over us. <laughs> yeah, not ready yet. <laughs> because and well and it's up to us to ripen ourselves. Because there comes a point where everything does come together. And when it comes together then the mind opens up to this other dimension. And it's <laughs> It's because you're, you've, as I said earlier, it, these different factors of the path actually give you practice in what it means to fabricate experience, especially concentration, because you're fabricating, you're putting together 
this, this time skillfully, a state of mind. And as you get more and more into that and doing it skillfully, you get more and more sensitive. Well, what, what, what would it be like if nothing was fabricated? And what would that mean? How would you not fabricate an experience? Because you get to a point where you begin to see that every time the mind moves, it moves from one spot to another spot because it thinks the next spot is going to be better. Either that or it just can't stay here any longer, it has to go down. But one or the other. You're either here or you move. And you finally get to the point realize, well, is another alternative besides staying and moving? And if you're at the right point, if you're ready, that's the moment where the mind doesn't fabricate anything and then it kind of opens up to the unfabricated. To get yourself to that spot, yeah. Mm-hmm. To kind of ripen yourself. It's like that old Zen koan, you know, you climb to the top of the flagpole and there's something climbing up after you. What do you do? Well, if you're going to let go of the flagpole, you better let go of gravity, too. <laughs> Isn't it a cool thought? <laughs> Margaret? You get your nose above water every now and then. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't even be inclined to want right view unless there was some part of you that says, okay, there's something wrong with this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We've been piling up all kinds of delusions. But at the same time, part of you know we're suffering, and that the, all the question is, how do I get out of this suffering? And you know, you try enough different methods that don't work, and finally you land on something. Mm, this sounds like this like might, might be right. Whoever gets the White House, I think, is not going to enjoy it. (laughs) Anything else? Is it just because it's that hour in the afternoon? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, well, notice what the Buddha is talking about. He's talking about, you know, what are you doing to create suffering right now? And you look at that, and there is a right view to that. What am I doing to create suffering around this issue right now? And there are certain things, as you say, there are certain situations outside you that you really can't see where this is going. But you can ask yourself, okay, how am I relating to this right now? Can I make sure that I'm not suffering from this situation right now? So I can actually get a better perspective on what's going on. And maybe be a little bit more patient to see how things work out. 
And that does have that does have an answer. Now to find that answer is going to be a matter of trial and error. And I don't know if you do you know the Buddha's instructions to Rahula? Rahula, his son. Where he's talking about how before you act, ask yourself what results do I expect expect of this action? And if you expect harm, you don't do it. If you don't expect harm, you go ahead and do it. Why you're doing it, if there's some immediate reaction results coming up, stop. Oh, you made a mistake. You misread the situation. Um, if you don't see anything bad coming up, continue with the action. And then when it's done, look back at it from the long from the long term. And if you see any harm from that, that you didn't ex- that you didn't see right away, okay, then you realize okay, that was a mistake. And then you go talk it over with someone else on the path who can give you some advice. View. <laughs> it goes through a process for all, and then finally, you know. But you, you know, what you what you do is you try to you try your best, and then by trying your best, then you can relearn. If you don't try your best, you're never really going to learn anything. But you try your best not to be harmful, and if it turns out you were harmful, say, okay, learn something. Next time around, I'm not going to do that. Find another action. Well, mm-hmm. it was like my teacher telling me. I asked him when he when he got asked me to start translating a John Lee. I asked him, "Well, do you want a literal translation, or do you want to get to the essence?" He said, "Both." <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of raised the bar. Then mm-hmm. I discovered, you know, it it is possible. So you have to basically raise the bar for yourself. Is there an action that would be helpful to both sides? Now again, harming, you have to realize if you, to really harm somebody is to get them to do something unskillful. Now this may, you know, financially may harm this person but benefit this person. That's not the kind of harm we're talking about. We're talking about, is this going to, well, to some extent we're talking about that. <laughs> if, you re- if it's really going to harm somebody badly. but. Sometimes, okay, it's, you know, this person is going to profit and this person is not going to profit. That's not nearly as serious as, okay, I'm going to get this person to lie or do something of that sort in order to help this other person. That's really harming this person. And that's what you've got to watch out for. Okay, now again, if you're stopping that person from, you know, making bad making a bad move. You're, actually, you're not actually harming that person, even though that person may think that you're getting in their way. And we're talking about killing them or anything, but just basically blocking somebody from doing something harmful. But you can't say, well, just because I think this person is a bad person, I'm going to mistreat them. That doesn't work. You've got to think, what, what would be for everybody's best, best interest? Again, that raises the bar. And whether you can actually f- figure out an answer, at least the fact that you've raised that question, might open you to some new possibilities. 
Okay, the next passage is on the Four Noble Truths, and we've pretty much discussed the whole thing. About what, how the Buddha defined the Four Noble Truths and the duties with regard to them. One thing I wanted to point out here, and that when he's talking about the cessation of stress, in the forest tradition, John Munn makes a distinction between the Third Noble Truth and Nirvana. Often you see the Third Noble Truth is equated with Nirvana. He says Nirvana is something, the Third Noble Truth is the process of getting there. So, I mean, finally arriving at Nirvana. When, you've let go, when you're letting go of all the, the craving, once you've let go of the craving, what's left, that's Nirvana. And there's no activity associated with that. The letting go, that's something that should be realized, but then the Nirvana itself, is, you don't have to do anything. And of those terms, the fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go. The term I translate as letting go here can also be translated as lack of nostalgia. You don't miss it. And this is one of the reasons why we keep you know, having our realizations and then of letting go of something, but then going back to it, because there's a little bit of nostalgia. Gee, I really like that. You know, it wasn't all that bad after all. Well, you come back. But in this case, you say, okay, I don't want this ever again. The next passages have to deal with the ultimate level of right view. And we've got five minutes to cover them. Hmm. The first one, Anandabindaka, he's going to see these wanderers. This is, this is one of my favorite conversations in the canon. So, tell us, householder, what views Gautama the Contemplative has? Venerable sirs, I don't know entirely what views the Blessed One has. Anandabindaka is a stream editor. And still he says, I don't know entirely what the Buddha's views are. If he doesn't know, none of us <laughs> know entirely. What we do know is what the Buddha taught about stress, right? Okay. Well, well, so you don't know entirely what views the Gautama the Contemplative has. Tell us what views the monks have. I don't even know entirely what views the monks have. So you don't entirely what views Gautama the Contemplative has or even that the monks have. Then tell us then what views you have. He says, it wouldn't be difficult for me to expound to you what views I have, but please let the Venerable Ones expound each in line with his view standpoint. And so they go through the standard list of what were the hot topics back in those days. Okay. Is, the, is the cosmos eternal, not eternal, whatever? And so finally, Anandika says, okay, as for the Venerable One who says any of these one views, this is the sort of view I have. This, this, his view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of others. Now this view has been brought into being, is fabricated, will, dependently co-arisen. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful, this Venerable One thus adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. You see, he's looking at the view looking at the process of clinging to a view. He's not, he's not taking on the view of whether that's true or not. He's saying, look at when you hold on to this view. How was this view created? What are you doing when you hold on to the view? What's the result of holding on to it? He says, you're submitting yourself to stress. He says that for all the views. So, and then they say, okay, now we've expounded our views. Tell us what view you have. And he says, my view is this. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful, whatever is stressful is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. 
This is the sort of view I have. Just as a side here, notice here, sometimes you hear they say, you know, the five, the five aggregates are not a self, but they are what you are. But actually, the Buddha said, with the five aggregates, you say, this is not me, this is not what I am, this is not myself. The Buddha never defines you as five aggregates. That's an important point to notice. He says we create our sense of self out of the five aggregates, but he never says what we are. Because, as he said, if you can define yourself, you limit yourself. So just put the question of what you are aside. And just notice where the stress is. Okay. So they thought they've caught him. So, householder, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant, whatever is inconstant is stressful, thus you adhere to that very stress, submit yourself to that very stress. He says, no, sir. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant, whatever is inconstant is stressful, whatever is stressful is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment as it has come to be, I also discern the higher escape from it as it has come to be. In other words, the point where the mind opens up, it goes beyond that by applying the same analysis to that particular view. In other words, you take this analysis of what is it like to hold to a view, and then you apply it, you turn around on your own holding to right view. Now notice you don't do this until right view has done its work. But once it's done its work, you say, well, it's like this tool you've been holding on to, to build a chair. Okay, once you've built the chair, you put the tool down. Well, in this particular case, you use right view in order to take, your, uh, take apart your attachment to right view and then put it down. So that's how you get from the second level of right view to the third level of right view. You kind of apply the second level to itself and go on. When this was said, the wanderers fell silent, abashed, sitting with their shoulders drooping, their heads down, brooding at a loss for words. As they say in Thai, som nam na. Serves them right. <laughs> okay. Any questions on that passage? Okay, you all understand it. We'll move on. <laughs> the other two passages simply have to do with the state of mind that lets everything go. Here, the Buddha is talking to Kachayana. Who asks him, what is right view? And the Buddha responds, This world is supported by or takes as its object a polarity, that of existence and non-existence. But one sees the origination of the world, and the world here means the six senses, with right discernment as it has come to be. Non-existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. In other words, while you're watching things arise, the concept of non-existence doesn't even come to the mind. When you watch the cessation of the world with right discernment as it's come to be, existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. Okay, these concepts at that point don't occur to you. All you see is just arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And it goes on to say, this world is in bondage to attachments, clings, and biases. It's important that you not be thinking about well, go ahead, existence or non-existence at that point. Because if you're thinking about existence and non-existence, you're going to hold on to existence. But if you just put those terms out of your mind, just say, look, okay, where is the stress right here? Let's let go of that. This, this is how he explains this. So one such as this does not get involved with clinging to these attachments, clingings, fixations of awareness, biases, or obsessions, nor is he resolved on myself. At that point, your thought of who you are doesn't even exist. 
So you're not directly attacking the concept of who you are. You're just looking at things in such a way that these concepts just are not occurring to you. So that you can let go of the cause of the problem. You have no uncertainty or doubt that mere stress when arising is arising. Stress when passing away is passing away. That's all you're looking for. It's just stress arising and passing away. And that's, that's the one noble truth at that point. That's why you let it go. In this, your knowledge is independent of others. It's to this extent that there is right view. So instead of attacking, attacking the, not, the sense of who you are, or you, whether you are something becoming or, or not becoming, instead of attacking that directly, you get the mind in a state where it's not those concepts don't occur to it. So you can just look at the process of stress and realize, okay, this is something that deserves to be let go of. And when you, when you see that oh, this deserves to be let go of, and you can let it go, then all the other problems fall away. Because as soon as you start attacking your sense of self straight on, part of you is going to resist. And if you see that the only alternatives are either existence or non-existence, you're going to go for existence. Or, or, or if you say, I don't like who I am, I want to destroy myself, I want to be locked out, then you go for non-existence. But either way, you're going in the wrong direction. So this is how the Buddha gets around that dilemma of you know, craving for becoming and craving for not becoming are both causes of suffering. He said, let's just look at this in terms of stress arising and passing away without getting involved in those issues at all. And that's how you get around them. You can see the Buddha is a very strategic thinker, a very strategic you know, trainer of the mind. Any quick questions on that? Yes. Every now and then, you know. <laughs> They asked him, <laughs> and there is one. There are a couple of places where the Buddha goes after some other wanderers too, and it's always on the issue of karma. People teaching you know that everything that you experience either comes from the past, or it comes from a greater God, or it's totally random and without cause. And those views are so pernicious from the Buddha's point of view that you've got to go out and get them from time to time. Well, back in the India, if you left somebody, you would kind of walk around them with your right side to them, and then. And this is why we have the, the the tradition of you know when you circumambulate around a jetty or a stupa. You keep your right side for the jetty. It's a way of showing respect. The devas always do that when they leave the Buddha. And you have other people who will show respect to the Buddha that way too. But yeah, it's not the case that when your monks just sit there and never say anything.
occasionally when you see that's the proper, the proper issue. You say something has to be said, then you say it. But you have to weigh the consequences. When the Buddha talks about, you know, there are people who are just not worth getting involved in an argument at all. You know, they won't recognize what a good, you know, they won't admit when you've made a good point. Um, or they will, they will deny, after they've said something, they'll deny that they said it. That kind of thing. And he said, these people are just not worth it. There was one case, though, there was a, uh, a wanderer from another sect, his name was Sachika, which is interesting because it means truth-teller. Um, who comes to see the Buddha and tries to argue that you're, the five aggregates are yourself? And the Buddha and the guy basically creates his, his own trap, and the Buddha catches him in the trap. And you realize that the guy himself doesn't really he doesn't become Buddhist at the end. He just you know pays his respect to the Buddha and goes. But it, the guy had brought on a lot of people to listen to him defeat the Buddha, and instead, of course, the Buddha defeats him. So this is one case where the Buddha says, oh, I've, got to, I've got to take this person on. But he does tell the monks, getting into formal debates, and this is a tradition that happened in India after the Buddha passed away, and there was to some extent that was before he passed away, which was kings would hold debates. You, you become, you, you ascend to the throne, you say, okay, I'm going to decide who I'm going to support, I'm going to hold a debate, I'm going to pose certain questions, and whoever gives the most satisfactory answer to my questions, uh, that's the group I'm going to support. And the Buddha said, stay away from those debates. Because what happens is that the person who poses the question, he's in charge. Now, there are a lot, remember, there are a lot of questions that the Buddha did not answer. You know, is there a self? Is there no self? No answer. Is the world eternal, not eternal? No answer. And that enabled him to be in charge of what questions he was going to address and which ones he was not. But you go into one of those debates, the person who posed the question, they're in charge. You can't say, oh, okay, that's a, that's a bad question. And the Buddha said, stay away from those debates. Before we break for the middle afternoon, um, there's that great John Cha story about questions. He was in London, or England someplace. He'd given a Dharma talk, and at the end of the Dharma talk, he asked you know, if there are any questions. And this one woman said, well, there's a question I've been asking a lot of other monks who come through here. They've never gotten a satisfactory answer. And there are different versions of you know what the question was she asked. And the version I prefer was, you know, what happens to someone when they gain awakening? Do they still exist or do they not exist? And John Chas says, well, this is one of those questions we don't answer. And I'll, I'll try to explain why. And the candle's burning next to him. He says, no, see the flame of the candle here. While it's burning, we can describe the shape and the color of the flame, right? He said, yes. Puts it out. He said, now, now that it's out, can we talk about the shape and the color of the flame? He says, no. He says, well, in the same way, we can't talk about someone who's gained awakening. And then he says, um, does that answer satisfy you? And she says, no. <laughs> and he said, well, in that case, I'm not satisfied with your question. Don't you wish you could have said that on a, on a, high, school <laughs> on a, on a, on a high school test? <laughs> okay. Um, just one more passage, and then we can break. Okay. This is one more passage where they're talking about all dhammas are unworthy of attachment. Okay. This is when you're letting go of everything. 
have to remember, Moggallana is about to become an arahant. He's got, he's ready to go. And so this is the point where the Buddha pulls out the big guns, all dharmas. That would include the path, everything, unworthy of attachment. Having heard this, you directly know every dharma. Directly knowing every dharma, you comprehend every dharma. Comprehending every dharma, then whatever feeling you experience, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain, you remain focused on inconstancy, dispassion, cessation, relinquishing. As you remain focused on inconstancy, focused, dispassion, cessation, relinquishing to that feeling, you are unsustained by or you do not cling to anything in the world. Unsustained, you are unagitated. Unagitated, you are bound right within. That's an interesting connection. Unsustained, you are not agitated. Not that you're not clinging to anything, you're not having to feed anything, so there's no agitation. It's not like having any stocks in the stock market. The stock market can go up and down, you are not agitated. If you're trying to feed off the stock market, you're reading every little thing coming out of the stock market. You discern the birth has ended, the Holy Life fulfilled the task done, there's nothing further for this world. This is how you're released through the ending of craving, utterly complete, utterly free from bounds, a follower of the utterly holy life, utterly consummate, foremost among devas and human beings. Okay, it's at this point where you let everything go. And that state of mind where you're just, whatever comes up, you let go, let go, let go. That's at the verge of arahantship. But to get there, you have to develop the path. You have to you know, work with mundane right view. You have to work with the second level of right view to get the mind to be in a position where it can actually do this and gain awakening. Otherwise, if you simply try to clone awakening by saying, well, I'll just be okay with whatever comes up, your mind is not getting properly fed. And when it's not properly fed, it's going to go out and feed off of whatever it can find on the roadkill. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Any questions on that? Yes. Okay. When you're working with the four noble twos, you got four duties, and the, and the, you have a duty only with one to let go, and that's craving. You have to develop the path. You know, to develop the path, you've got to hold on to your practices. So you're making a distinction. I'm not letting go of everything right now. That's the difference. You've completed the developing of the path. There's nothing more to develop. Yeah, you'd have to, well, stream enter, non-returner, before you're really able to let go of everything. At the moment of stream enter, you really do let go, at least for a brief time. But the mind is not totally prepared for Total letting go yet. Question? feeding off of these things, but in order to feed off these things, you have to create a sense of who you are, that you've got the, you know, you've got the ability to f fix the food, you know, these, these abilities that you have, these skills that you have, there's a sense of you as the self, as the producer. That self as producer also has to be fed. In other words, you've got this body so that you can find food, but then, okay, the, f the body itself needs food, so there's a cycle going on here.
because this is what it means to be a being, is you have a, a desire and you try to fulfill that desire. That's how you create your identity. Once you've got an identity, you have to sustain it with more food. So you know, the desire itself leads to more, 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 more. You're trying to get out of that. Going for the shit in the toilet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. This is why when the Buddha talks about getting the mind in concentration, he's, he's talking about getting into concentration for fairly long periods of time, because the mind needs to have that kind of long-term nourishment. It's not like kind of jumping in, jumping, 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 getting there and staying. And feeling really good about staying. And if you're going to be attached, you're attached. As John Fuang used to say, is if you're not a, if you're not really crazy about the concentration, you're not going to master it. You have to be really kind of attached to it. And since this is a John Cha has been at the back of the room, I'll end with an, avi- an image from a John Cha. He says it's like coming back from the market. You've got a banana in your hand, and someone says, "You know, it's a banana. What are you going to do with it?" And you say, I'm going to eat it. And they say, are you going to eat the peel too? No. Then why are you carrying the peel? And the judge says, how are you going to answer them? And he, his answer comes in two stages. The first stage is, you're going to answer with desire. In other words, you have to have the desire to come up with a good answer to get the right answer, right? So desire is a part of the, going to be part of the path. Part of your discernment it has to come from the desire to do this well. And then, of course, the answer is going to be because the time hasn't let come to let go of the peel. And if you let go of the peel now, all you have is mush in your hands. When I get it home, the peel will have served its purpose. I can take the peel, throw it away, and eat. That's the final letting go. Yeah. 